Hello and good time zone. Hello. Can you believe this, that we are doing an episode a month after another episode? <gasps> I'm so proud of us. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, I'm elated. And and we, we have like a plan and like different ones that we're going to bring up. And they all sound really good. And I've been super excited to talk about today's since like forever. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, because also this was this episode is one that we discussed a while back as being like our next one. And then we kind of like fudge stuff around and like moved stuff around. So like this one's been like on the list for a while. But also our timing is impeccable because we're actually like one on top of the other. Although probably jinxing that as I say it with what's <laughs> coming up in our own personal lives. <laughs> so Yay, adulting stress. It's so much fun. We're consistent, then we're not. That's just what you're signing up for. We're consistently inconsistent, but we will always bring you interesting stories. True. Yes, because this is Herlocked Files. Hell yeah. This is Herlocked Files. It's our true crime and gaming pop culture podcast with me. Zoe or Little Red, however, whichever, and and me, Yeba, also known also known as Abby. So hello, hello, oh, and good time zone, and and yeah, I'm oh my god. First of all, I'm excited for warmer weather just to get that one out there too. And second of all, it is so nice to have all of our days be so much longer because I actually feel like a functional human being again after so many months of just not having sunlight. So. Fair. I don't actually like get affected mm. by the sunlight thing that I'm I know so a lot jealous. of people do. But this year I did. So be jealous of past Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> um, because this year I was like, so the second it, I start, it started being sunny yep. at like 6 p.m. again. I was like, whoa, my brain's functioning. Changed my whole world. And I, I feel like we're also, since we're all at the tail end of COVID times and vaccines are rolling out and everybody's being able to get stuck either once or twice and are getting all those beautiful antibodies, I feel like there's actually a light at the end of the tunnel, unlike what there was through most of those winter months. Fair. So it's it's kind of been a nice double whammy of like sunshine, both in our lives, but then also like all around us for like some semblance of, of safety and normalcy. So. Yeah. Although just the idea of like, I I get my second shot soon and just the idea of like going outside, like just this like a weird concept to me. Very strange. I'm not going to restaurants. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not, I'm personally not doing any of that, but like, I like that if I need to go to work, I can travel to work and have a lot less stress on my brain about everything. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I feel a bit better about traveling. Yes. I feel a little bit safer and 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 calmer about like going to see my family for the weekend or going to see you know going to get a tattoo like Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit less stressed about it we have discussed going to a restaurant as like a one thing to do but like also depends on like (laughs) which restaurant (laughs) it also could be like if they have patio seating I feel like if push came to shove, I'd be comfortable having some patio seating if it meant yeah. that I could be outside and yeah. even if other people are around that. But also I have a baby niece coming soon, like very soon, like in a couple of weeks. So, so you need to like stay like bubble boy. Yes. For the baby niece. That is correct. For for baby niece and sister-in-law because sister-in-law is going to get vaccinated right after she's done, but uh, she chose not to get vaccinated before. So we're going to we're going to keep that whole family safe. 
and then you know maybe go out for waffles or something so there you go. <laughs> waffles are great <laughs> waffles are fantastic i want them i keep seeing those videos of people putting different things in waffle makers uh, and trying Ooh. to waffle them <laughs> ah. i don't think they realize that the waffle is i don't really think that's the, the shape as much as it is like the batter components because that's like, true waffle batter is not the same as pancake batter i don't know nope you can't argue that with me but like yes it's partially the shape yep. because like waffle fries are called waffle fries for a reason mm-hmm. but it's not only the shape but i do think it's funny people are like i'm gonna put ramen in my waffle press and then make waffle ramen okay that's kind of yeah all right i don't know if i'd eat that but you know to each their own i guess yeah no I said I've been watching it. I didn't say I was supporting the trend. <laughs> That's fair. When you said tattoo earlier, I, I went, don't be sad. Get a tattoo Get a in tattoo. my head. So can't wait for that TikTok eventually. Excited for that one of your new fresh tattoos. Exciting. I know. I've already had two during this quarantine of me using that song. Because <laughs> that's like the only thing I like. I was like, you know what, if I'm like, because tattoo parlors are very sanitary. They should. They I mean, they've been, they have to be. So they have like, to be. It's gonna so be now they're way. like double sanitary. So I feel like it's you, it's your tattoo artist. You're both yep. sanitary. Yep. Masks up. Everything's sanitized. How many times can I say that word? We'll find <laughs> out. Um, so I feel like it was a pretty safe activity. I've gotten two, technically three, because I got two at once but they were small. Nice. Over quarantine. And I'm like excited to get like more, but I also got like stuff that didn't have me there for eight hours. You know, that's true. That's true. The amount of work. Yeah. That needs to be done is probably. Yeah. That's, that's fair. That's fair. I have, I have zero tattoos. My skin scars too easily. I was advised against it. Oh no. Yeah. It's okay. It's all right. We'll just have to get you those like stamps that like last for like six to eight weeks. Yeah. Those are really cool. Those are really cool. I, I, would, I would be. You? Give me a whole bunch of those in anime form and I'll wear them all over the place. Boom. I have like a murderino tattoo planned. I'm very excited about it. <gasps> I'm so excited for that one. Yay. Oh, <laughs> I'm not wearing my hat. I have a Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered hat. I have one of those. <gasps> I ordered one. They're really cute. Is it like a beanie or like a dad cap? It's a dad cap. Yeah. I look surprisingly good in dad caps. We, we found that out during like like a little bit before quarantine. I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, I look nice in hats. Holy shit. Okay, <laughs> cool, cool, cool. All right, we're going to wear these more often. I like this. The motif I never thought I'd embrace. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, well, should we get to, to crime, murder, and video games? Because I feel like we should get to crime, murder, and video games. I think so, probably. Should we tell okay. them what we're discussing? Yes, and I will happily do so. So one of the topics that we had thought about for some time, and it's 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 in my tops. It's in my tops in terms of like, what I like to research and read about and everything is spies. So yeah, we decided to choose the theme of spies and then go through either pop culture, a video game or anything related to that. And then tie it into either something that we've researched. If it was like a real life event or like a crime that happened, we both discussed exactly how political ours are going to be because um (laughs) because honestly when it comes to like spy espionage and anything most likely it's going to be tied to a government entity of some sort 
So yeah, you can't really get around that. No one's no. really spying on like the Girl Scout troops. <laughs> yeah. And like, even if you had like Assassin's Creed, if that was like a game that you chose, it's going to be the French Revolution, for instance. Like it's you're you're not going to be able to escape how all of that ties into one another. So yeah, I'm I'm excited for this topic. For those of you who don't know, I am fairly politically minded <laughs> and uh, I go on rants on, on my Twitch channel. Like people can actually redeem, like, tell us about the transportation bill. And I'll be like, listen here. And then no, um, it's not that intense, but yeah, it is that intense. I lied. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, as much as it would have been fun to talk about like totally spies or yeah. uh, the Barbie spy game, <laughs> which we did talk I about <laughs> distinctly remember playing as a child and like Barbie in like a tight bodysuit, just moving through lasers that's all i remember fantastic we did talk about it but but unfortunately oddly enough there is no (laughs) real life events that heavily influenced the barbie spy game it's apparently it was just barbie being a spy so (laughs) trying a different career path other than being a model and a veterinarian so i'll take it and a doctor and a real estate agent astronaut TV host and yep. a culinary chef. Teacher. And, uh... <laughs> oh, and Anything a gymnast. Your heart desires. That was another computer game. Oh, really? Yes. Oh my God. The Barbie gymnast game. I don't think I played that one. I did have a, I did have the Olympics Barbie though. I did have the Olympics edition okay. Barbie. I did have that growing up. I remember having three Barbie games. It was the spy one, the veterinarian one, where you would go out into a field and find animals. <gasps> And bring them into your veterinarian office. Oh, my God. And then uh, nurse them back to health, whether you were like picking brambles out of their fur or like giving them medicine. And then you would release them back into the wild or give them back to their owners. I don't know. It was a whole thing. And then the gymnast one was like you were training to be an Olympic gymnast. Nice. And the best part of that game was the fact that it was set up almost like Dance Dance Revolution. So to do your gymnast tricks, it would be arrows falling down the screen and then Mm -hmm. you'd have to hit the arrows on the keyboard when it lined up. So it was it was basically Dance Dance Revolution, but you were doing gymnastics. That's kind of cool. I probably would have played that. Oh, and we can't forget about Nancy Drew and the Silent Spy. Can't forget about that one, too. I think that's the only Nancy Drew game that almost made me cry. So to be completely honest. That's the one about her mom, right? Yeah. Oof. That one was rough. That one was rough, but it was great. It was a good, that was a good game. So uh, unfortunately, like Zoe said, we can't talk about those because, I mean, we can. We could talk about them. We are talking about them. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> we can't relate them to anything uh, cool and interesting. So we decided to take very hard left turns. <laughs> em- em- emphasis on the left. And uh, decided to go toward, towards some other, other games. So um, shall I start us off? Yes, let's go. All right. So when it comes to spy, pretty much anything, I think there's a certain name both in game franchising as well as literature that comes up, and that is the infamous Tom Clancy. So for my choice for uh, the game uh, to discuss is actually going to be the Splinter Cell series. So Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. For those of you who for whatever reason, have lived under a rock and do not know who this man was. 
Tom Clancy was an American author uh, who also gave his rights for a lot of his stories to be transformed both into movies, TV shows, as well as video games. Some of the most notable titles include Rainbow Six, which turned into Rainbow Six Siege, Jack Reacher, which is a pretty decent, um, I, I enjoyed it, uh, which I believe was a movie and then also became a, fran- uh, a television franchise over on Amazon Prime. And then one of my favorite movies, The Hunt for Red October, with Sean fucking Connery. So <laughs> highly recommend it if you if you're uh, I don't know if anybody else grew up with like Boomer or Gen X dads and has been inundated with a number of war movies. All of Tom Clancy's everything has been geared to that exact group of people. So if you if you were like me and you either had the choice of watching The Hunt for Red October, U571 or Saving Private Ryan on a Saturday morning because your father was in charge of the remote, that's essentially, you know, what you were stuck with. I feel like my dad went in the complete opposite direction in terms of spy movies that he showed us <laughs> as children. Did he go You're like, like Steven Seagal? He went like, I mean, there's like, there's the obvious James Bond and then, oh, and then yeah. we did Austin Powers. So like, <laughs> I listen. Yes. Man of mystery. Obviously we have to, we have to include, we have to include that, but I, I would, I would liken Tom Clancy in terms of like, of prowess and the characters that he created. He created a lot of James Bond-esque characters for the American motif. Mm, mm-hmm. So when it comes to a lot of that. So the Splinter Tell series uh, primarily has the main protagonist, who is Sam Fisher. Sam Fisher is considered a little bit of a rogue soldier, so he has a little bit of a mind of his own. He is a loyal operative, but he is very cynic about the types of tasks that he is asked to do. All of the Splinter Cell series are robust, self-based games that have uh, fun gadgets, immersive environment play, and are extremely critically acclaimed across the board. The first game that came uh, came out in 2002, uh, it was created by Ubisoft, and it actually it actually had quite an interesting tagline where it was Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Stealth Action Redefined, which is a bit of a bold statement given that there was also Metal, Metal Gear Solid as well as the game Thief that came out around the same time. But if anybody uh, who's listening has played Splinter Cell, uh, like I have played Splinter Cell, in terms of spy franchises, gameplay, immersive gameplay, and AI, it is, to me, the hardest game that I have played to get through. It's very it's very puzzly in terms of, like, you have to think smart to get through each level. And that was the first game where I had hyper-reactive AI that would react to my mistakes. Oh. Yeah. So like if you made too much noise, if you if you poked your head out too early, if you actually got spot, you know, they're actually got spot, actually got spotted. What is the correct English there? Uh, if you were identified being in a place that you were not supposed to be. So you got in trouble. And and it was kind of the first game that I had really played that it was like a war simulation game that really emphasized that you have to be smart about all of the choices mm-hmm. that you make. I'm a big fan of the Thief series, so this this was right up my alley. The light play was ahead of its time when this happened. Just all the different, the, the dark shadows and the light areas, where you were able to hide, where you were able to put bodies if you did a non-lethal takedown and you were able to hide them kind of like in Hitman. All of that was just relatively new and really cool to experience for the first time. Some of the acrobatics that are in it are pretty legendary, including the split wall hang. When uh, the person is is doing the splits, they climb all the way up and they have the splits and they can drop down on top of someone. That was the first game I had really experienced that had that too. So, Is that what it's for? 
Yes. It's to drop down on someone? It's to avoid being detected and or, and or drop down on someone. That makes so much more sense. I thought it was like <laughs> a way to like climb up. Like, I don't want to say the word. Um, <laughs> Narrow passageways that are vertical? Correct. Uh, <laughs> I, I climb up like a narrow passageway, but I always wondered like how once you get to the top, do you How do you get out? Like, how do you get out of that? But it, it makes sense. You're not, it's not for climbing purposes. And in some of the later games, it became that way just because the levels were allowed to be a bit more detailed. So in total, there were seven games. I've played the original Tom Clancy Spinner Cell. I've also played Chaos Theory, which is actually the highest rated out of the series in terms of, of both viewer enjoyment as well as critics. And then I played Conviction, which came out in 2010. So those are all the ones that I played. So that was like three out of the seven. As well as a lot of just acrobatic ability to take down. Eventually, they got a little bit more playful of like being outside, you know, passing past windows, hanging off of ledges and like doing all these really cool things. You get very James Bondy with this character where they're able to give you a bunch of fun toys and gadgets, including silenced pistols lockpicks, night vision goggles, underdoor cameras, which were my personal favorite, sticky cams that you could stick in any hallway in order to scope out where you needed to go, and very, very futuristic heat imaging technology. You never had the wrong tool or at the wrong time to survive. Everything you did, if you messed up, you messed up because you suck. That's really what that game was. They, <laughs> they really gave you like, they really gave you like every tool to not suck. And if you ended up getting killed, it was like, well, I just did something stupid. You could do lethal takedowns or non-lethal takedowns, depending on your difficulty, much like the Hitman series. And just like my favorite game at the time period, Thief Deadly Shadows, the shadows and hiding in this game were absolutely fun as hell. So the games ran for a series from 2002 to 2013. Like I mentioned, there were seven in the series. The two highest acclaimed were Chaos Theory, which is uh, number three, and then Blacklist, which was actually the last of the series in 2013. Eventually, the games morphed from just being campaign style to going more towards uh, online PvP matches and maps. And that actually started with the second game in the franchise, which is Pandora Tomorrow, to have the online version Spies versus Mercenaries. I didn't play this one as much. I'm, I was mostly a Counter-Strike gal back in that day. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for everybody that I played against. I was a bit of an asshole. And <laughs> nah, don't <laughs> apologize. A bit of an asshole. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the same gamer tag that I, I did back then, so y'all can't find me, but it's fine. So, but the Spies versus Mercs was a lot of fun when I did play it. They never quite figured out the power structure very well, so it always felt like whatever side, if, if you were on the side of the mercenaries, you kind of always had a hand above the Spies. So it just, it, it didn't feel very well balanced. They tried, they, they kept trying, but people, you know, kept outsmarting the, the system itself. I just saw a TikTok about a board game that was like spies versus villains, I think it was. Ooh. And it was like, all your information is like hidden and mm -hmm. you're like trying to make moves to either like get the villains to win or get the spies to win, but you're not supposed to like reveal your intentions. That's kind of cool. It seemed really cool. It had a lot of cool like game board pieces. There's a lot of really interesting games that all involve like manipulation <laughs> and like really good lying. And I'm not good at any of that. So yeah, I'm yeah. like, I can't, I, uh, first of all, I can't lie. It's very difficult. And second of all, if I'm lying on camera, which is how most of this would happen or in person, people are going to know I get that constipated look on my face. 
like I'm hiding something. And then everybody just knows that I'm, you know, trying to be cheeky, but I suck at it. So like, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. See, I try not to necessarily lie. Like mm-hmm. I just don't say everything. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of how, but then I, I corner myself into this. It happens a lot in Among Us where like, even though I am the imposter, I am doing bad things. Like I am the bad guy. Yep. I've played multiple games where like I end up being the imposter, but I just don't like I don't lie. I'm just really bad at being the imposter, but I'm not <laughs> lying about what I'm doing. I did go there. I did do that. You know, right. like I I didn't lie about anything, but people think I, like will accuse me of lying. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I've just kind of lost all hope because like <laughs> people think I'm lying when I'm telling the truth. Or they think I'm lying when I'm lying. So I really just can't win. (laughs) Can't win. It's impossible. It's impossible. I haven't played Among Us in a long time. I tried it once and I didn't mind it. But at the same time, again, I'm just not. I don't think I'm built for that game. That's fair. Yeah. So just to give a quick synopsis of the first game. So you kind of have an understanding of what Sam Fisher, the main protagonist, goes through. And this is a pretty good synopsis for a lot of the types of books that Tom Clancy does and is pretty much your cornerstone when it comes to any type of war crime simulation game uh, like Splinter Cell. So Sam Fisher is brought out of retirement and is recruited to be part of Third Echelon, which is a secret operation of the United States government loosely tied to Department of Defense and the National Security Agency or the NSA. I find it hilarious that the NSA was the one that was chosen for this franchise instead of the CIA because the NSA was so new that like it didn't have a lot of the baggage that the CIA (laughs) has. So which I will go into. But yeah, so I I found it funny that the NSA was the one that was chosen. So within uh, third echelon, he would be a splinter cell operator who specializes in counterterrorism measures. In the first game, you stumble across something fishy when deployed to retrieve two operatives in Georgia. Instead of finding them alive, you find their bodies and a whole heaping mess of story involving information terrorism, arms dealing, and ethnic cleansing in neighboring countries. After a skirmish that involved NATO, those of you who don't know, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the new billionaire leader of Georgia who performed a coup goes into hiding and launches an information terrorism attack on the U.S. causing mass casualties and mayhem. The whole series itself is great. And if if you want to take the time to play the series, fantastic. If instead you just want to learn the series through the eyes of Sam Fisher, learn about the game, but then also go through the actual story, I actually found an entire synopsis of the history of Splinter Cell from a YouTube guy uh, named Nick930. And this video is incredible. Like the production value and the amount of time this dude spent on explaining game mechanics, walking through the games, telling you the stories, and then telling you all of like the really cool nuances throughout the entire series was really, really cool. Again, I played Splinter Cell. I never played like Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, or like uh, any of those, but I have played like the Hitman series, Thief, Metal Gear Solid, and then also Splinter Cell. So if you like any of those, you're going to like Splinter Cell, and it's a really, really cool franchise. So (laughs) while I was going through that fantastic video, (laughs) the emphasis on the information warfare use specifically in all of these games that sort of happened after the year 2001 became a really big motif in television shows and movies, in video games, everything. So counterterrorism kind of had this resurgence and it was really led by Tom Clancy's novels and that being like the blueprint of making a good story. 
So as I was going down this rabbit hole, I, of course, started linking this to a lot of current events. So for anybody who just needs a quick description on what information warfare is, it is the manipulation of information trusted by a target without the target's awareness. So the target will make decisions against their interest, but in the interest of the one conducting the information warfare. As a result, it is not clear when information war begins, ends, or how strong or destructive it is until it comes to a culmination. Information warfare may involve the collection of tactical information, assurances that one owns information is valid when it is not, spreading propaganda, or spreading disinformation to demoralize or manipulate certain targets. The United States military force tends to favor technology and hence tends to extend into the realms of electronic warfare, cyber warfare, information assurance, and computer network operations. So words can hurt. <laughs> words words can hurt. Words especially words can if, hurt. I feel like when you're when, when we see propaganda in action in a historical sense, you can pinpoint when it was wrong, but as as we learn and as we, you know, experience history ourselves, we start to learn when we have been fed as as our generation uh, I'm in my early 30s, for anybody who doesn't know. Uh, you know, I'm a millennial, so so I've gone through the disinformation and I've gone through the manipulation of information from our own government as well as external governments. So like, I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like in the moment you don't know that it's happening, but until it comes to a culmination, until it comes to a head, you are surprised at what you learn to be disinformation and propaganda. Right. So most of the rest of the world uses a much broader term called information operations. So not just information warfare, because, you know, it doesn't have to be attributed to war, but whatever. So although making use of technology, information operations focuses also on the human-related aspects of information use, including social network analysis, decision analysis, and the human aspects of command and control. So I was reminded pretty readily, and this is why this was kind of appropriate that we waited to talk about this, this topic because other interesting things popped up. This was reminded after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th this year. It is not a secret that our own country has been under the influence of outside the border operatives in terms of misinformation, which through the guise of social media and internet forums has influenced our elections, our acceptance of truth, and even called into question our understanding of reality. But we also don't have to look that far to find enemies who use the same tactics like QAnon. I'm so excited. <laughs> you should be. You should be. I'm so excited about this conversation. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I'm I'm excited. I don't and just so anyone understands, like my relationship with Yeba is that like I I just love how brilliant she is. She's she's a very well informed person. She does her research. She knows her shit. She's also very eloquent when she talks. So Thank when you. she speaks on subjects like this, I get like it's not irrational, but I get like overtly excited to hear it <laughs> because oftentimes I feel like when I try to explain this stuff, it doesn't come out right. Not because I feel I'm less intelligent or, or any like negative thing. It's just I don't feel like I'm that I'm doing it now. Like, I don't feel like I'm that well spoken. Um, so or, or I feel like I like trip myself up in trying to get my message across. And so just hearing you have a talk about it, I get like hella excited because I'm just like, yes, drive it home. And like just know, <laughs> and just know when you make fantastic points, like again, like your, your in-depth discussion and like talking about the relevance of Skid Row 
and the political effects of like urban development and trying to get rid of homelessness instead of actually directly attributing the problem to like what needs to be solved. Like all of that was absolutely spectacular last <laughs> week. So trust me when I say that that it is it is mutual. It is mutual when there is just a badass motherfucking point that either of us makes and it's just it's just awesome. I just get really hype about yes. the conversations that are about to take place. Yes. And also um, massage your jaw because it's going to be falling open a lot once I start talking about some stuff. So as I mentioned, you don't have to look very far when it comes to disinformation operatives and people who want to spread misinformation for the sake of their own benefit. So there is an illusion that as the world's police, America is not susceptible to this type of behavior being, quote unquote, in a first world country and also, quote unquote, the top of the world powers. As we have seen on January 6th, this is simply not true when we nearly had a coup attempt, which is an organized effort to influence power to be for something else or for someone else this year. And this is not the first time America has, ex- has experienced a coup attempt, but of course, ETAs are never going to let you be taught that. Anywho, so on top of acknowledging our weakness, America has an unfortunate foggy lens turned towards themselves that uh, seems to gloss over its own involvement in world atrocities, which also is mirrored by a really weird sense of like military hype that touts that, you know, we're the best and we're so cool. And we're also doing this for the benefit of other countries. I am not calling into question our military might. Our military might is definitely not a sham, uh, nor am I claiming that every single thing that everybody does in the military is bad. But the use of our intelligence forces our track record post-World War II on the world stage and our increasing release of declassified information from the 1940s onwards is showing a very shaky past of moral high ground. To bring it back to why I'm bringing this up, in looking into the literature world and the overall history of Tom Clancy, it has created a new trope where there is a certain phrase that constantly comes up in review of his work, which is Tom Clancy made the military cool again. While there is no doubt in my mind that the stories inspired by him, as noted above, The Hunt for Red October, Jack Reacher, and Some of All Fears are great stories, they do not have fair depiction of the world influence that this creates. While we have used our military resources for good, these same resources have been used to cause unnecessary or absolutely catastrophic repercussions throughout the past through different operations that did not have good endings. So to bring it full circle, from 2016 to 2019, the U.S. government agencies included the CIA, the NSC, which is the National Security Council, the Department of Defense, the FBI, and the State Department started to unseal official documents from operations uh, that happened in Central and South America from the 1950s onwards, typically to about 1990. Some of them are still uh, under lock and key, but they're making their way out. In an act of diplomacy started under the Obama administration as an act of goodwill and as a start of an apology, these official records were released to acknowledge the involvement of U.S. forces in the placement of right-wing dictators, numerous regional coup attempts, as well as assassinations, and ultimately that resulted in mass genocides that happened with American intelligence forces' knowledge and at worst, government encouragement. Yikes. Yes. So let's talk about Operation Condor and the Argentine Dirty War. I have to give you some background first. I have to give you some very important background because I need you to learn why we started getting involved in this area. So 
as we all know, during the post-World War II era, what was identified as the major threat to American culture, America's power in the world, and as well as America's standing, was uh, Russia. And in that term, the USSR. So the main threat that was coming over from them were the ideals of communism that were going head to head against our obvious ideals of both capitalism and democracy uh, and democratic government. A lot of socialist ideals, a lot of more left wing communist sympathizing ideals were taking root throughout Central and South America as they have been. This really wasn't necessarily an influence of the USSR. This is also just societally and socially how a lot of those countries were operating. So, uh, but just because it was in our hemisphere, just because it was in the Americas hemisphere, the governments identified it, identified countries at risk and wanted to partner with different groups to ensure that communism did not take hold. So the best way to do that is to have militant authoritarian juntas in charge. I'll go into what juntas are in, in just a second. Let's start. We're, we're going to narrow this field down and we're mostly going to talk about Argentina. But just know that there were seven to nine countries through four decades that were affected by our operations. Jesus. Yes. And this does not include Nicaragua, Honduras or El Salvador, which we are unfortunately reaping some serious consequences from that happened later. So just to just to go into straight into Argentina, Juan Domingo Perón was the three-time elected president of Argentina. During his first term from 46 to 52, it was a big hurdle for him to get elected. Um, He was a military man. He was very well liked by the Argentinian people. He had some problems, but he was a former military man. He was finally elected uh, president. A lot of the country started shifting into leftist policies and started being sympathizing to uh, socialist ideals, specifically under the, the guise of economic populism which is glorifying the labor force, um, you know, saying, you know, fuck the bourgeoisie, the message to sending uh, to ending poverty, and then just a lot of leftist ideals of, you know, all labor is valid. Everybody deserves a livable wage. Everybody deserves benefits. Um, the country should lift up its people type of a thing. So Juan Domingo Perón was also married to his second wife, whose name was Maria Eva Duarte, who then became Eva Perón who is more commonly known as Evita. For those of you who are of the musical theater genre, Evita, which is a true story, is about, concentrates on the life of the Argentine political leader, Eva Perón, and follows her early life, her rise to power, her charity work, and her inevitable death when she suffered from cervical cancer in 1952. It's a musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh my God. Yeah, so there's going to be quite a few interesting connections here. So Juan Domingo Perón, married to Eva Perón, also known as Evita. So through her work, she really established Perón as a household name, as somebody who is for the people. Because of this and because of her charity work and because of all the things that she did, the uh, military saw this as a threat. And during his second term as president from 52 to 55, there was a lot of talk from the military saying that Juan's sympathizers, a.k.a. the Peronists, were going to be a problem because they were idolizing a singular person. And not only are the leftist policies dangerous to the country as a whole, which, you know, is left for debate, because <laughs> I'm not going to say either which way, but the, the you know, typically 
if our right wing crazy conservative policy is trying to say, you know, fuck poor people, I tend to get upset about it. But whatever. To each their own. To each their own. Not really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Peronis started being labeled as threats. So therefore, they said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and have a brief military coup. So they did that and they took over the country. And then Juan was exiled from the country. Uh, He lost his position and was not allowed back until 1973. The civilian government was reestablished in 1973 as well. And as you can imagine, with his triumphant return, Peronists and leftists of the country easily elected him as the head of their party. And then he went on to win his third election in 1973. Running as his vice president ticket was his third wife, who he had met while in exile, Isabel. This is where things get a little dicey. I almost made a really bad joke while you were talking, but I was like, (laughs) I'm not going to interrupt for that. (laughs) What is it? You were just, you were talking about Juan and I was just like, yes, as Juan does. And then I was like, don't do it. I was like, don't do it. Well done. (laughs) No, I did it. (laughs) We found, we found a good, we found a good time to stop. Um, (laughs) As Juan does. God damn it. Can't help it. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Well done. So President Perón, Juan Domingo Perón, unfortunately passed away in 1974, a year into office, leaving the presidency to his widow, Isabel. Yeah, that got interesting pretty quick. (laughs) As a side story, did you know that Juan Domingo Perón's hands were removed from his tomb, which was desecrated in 1987? A sword that he was buried with, as well as his hands, were stolen from his desecrated tomb. And then there was a ransom letter asking for 8 million U.S. dollars sent to um, some Peronist members of Congress being like, you need to pay them to make sure they do their job for me while I hold these personal effects, including a dead man's hands ransom. Found that story while reading about this. It was great. Again, Okay, first of all, like I understand like maybe <laughs> taking the sword. Like mm-hmm. it's like a it's like an object, it might be of value. Yep. Sure. We're grave robbing, we're robbing like valuable items. Took his hands. But I'm assuming his hands were still attached to his body. Oh, they were. They had to use a chainsaw. Yep. Yep. So wait, they brought a chainsaw to, to their a tomb grave robbing in Buenos Aires. To a tomb and then decided, you know what? We're going to take these swords and these hands. So, yep. I had to keep this light and interesting <laughs> to some degree before I get to the really heavy bullshit. I just can't get over it. I just can't get over, like, let's go desecrate yep. a grave. And then let's hold let's hold his personal effects that we stole, including his hands, hostage. And then make the government pay members of Congress $8 million in ransom. Not even me. But also- why would but, yeah. but why would the government do I like, don't know the government they, they, they never want paid the it. hands back? No, they, they never paid it and it's been his all his stuff has been missing since. I mean, so. of course they never paid it. Again, like how do you you're like clearly someone didn't go to like ransom 101 because they're like yep. you're supposed to take something that they want. Yep. I don't really think they want his hands back. I mean, like, yeah, like <laughs> I'm sure you should put those back, but but you're not, the government's not going to be like, oh, oh no, we need those hands. Yep. We need them. Yep. We have to pay for them. <laughs> no, you're just no. some weirdo with a pair of hands. Yep. 
And just so people don't put this man on a pedestal and feel bad that his hands were stolen from his grave, please know that Juan Perón was very much a Nazi sympathizer. Most of his populism that he learned was from Nazi Germany, which he traveled to. And he was known for explicitly allowing war criminals and fleeing Nazis to enter his country. So no one would want his hands. So no one would want his hands. They can stay missing. So I want to make sure I put that out there because I don't want any Twitter hate. And I want everybody to have the full picture that even though he is a a leftist, a politically leftist icon when it comes to socialist policy, a lot of his influence came from an incorrect source. And, And a lot of his populism was unfortunately influenced by Nazi Germany, which it should not have been, and basically allowed genocidal maniacs to live in his country with no problem. So important thing. So back to uh, his death. So he died in 1974. And uh, Isabel, who was the vice president on his ticket, just like he ran with Eva, was and uh, became president. Things did not go well. There was a lot of unrest during her years as leader, and the country was not very surprised when the military did another forceful takeover of the government. I don't want to state that this was a common practice, but it was a common tactic used repeatedly in countries in this area to avoid widespread unrest or to check the government's branch power. But a lot of these transfers and a lot of these takeovers that happened were very peaceful. This one was not. This one did not go normally. And the military junta that was installed was fueled by two things. The fear of communism during the Cold War, and they were fully fueled funneled and stoked by foreign interference, namely the United States of America. So this was part of a joint military and intelligence operation known as Operation Condor. This was a United States-backed campaign of political repression and state terror involving intelligence operations and assassination of opponents. A lot of times it would be putting in place military juntas, which is typically a party that is run by the military that does not have or feature free and fair elections. It will take over the government forcefully through the power of a coup and is not in an elected position. So when you hear military junta, which is spelled J-U-N-T-A, that is what that means. The Condor's key members were militaries in Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Brazil. Ecuador and Peru joined later into the operation in more peripheral roles. The United States government provided coup planning, attack coordination, training in methods of torture, technical support, and supplied military aid to the juntas during the Lyndon B. Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan administrations. Most of this support was funneled right through the Central Intelligence Agency, also known as the CIA. So just to give you a few of the instances where the U.S. supported all of these pieces, General uh, Strasser was, again, fueled by U.S. operations, took control of Paraguay in 1954. The Brazilian military overthrew President Goulart in Brazil in 1964. General Banzer, who took power in Bolivia in 1971, took power through a series of coups. A civic military dictatorship seized power in Uruguay in 1973. This is probably the most violent up to that point. The uh, Chilean armed forces commanded by, and I hope you would know this name, General Augusto Pinochet, bombed the presidential palace in Chile in 1973, overthrowing the democratically elected president Salvador Allende. 
It is not clear if Allende killed himself to avoid capture or inevitable public execution or if he was murdered actually by Pinochet's men. However, he did give a heartfelt speech over the radio to his countrymen live before his death as this was going on. I'm going to read an expert. Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Keep in mind that much sooner than later, the great avenues will again be opened through which will pass free men to construct a better society. Long live Chile, long live the people, long live the workers. And the last of the military juntas to be put into place was by General Jorge Videla, who seized power in Argentina on March 24th, 1976. Most notably, the rise of specifically General Videla and also General Pinochet is where most no- where a lot of people sh- should know, based on their names, the level of genocide that happened in the countries because of them. Due right. to its nature, the precise number of deaths directly attributed to Operation Condor is highly disputed. However, some estimates state that there were at least 60,000 deaths attributed to Operation Condor in itself. To also show the devastation, in 1992, important documents called the Archives of Terror were found in Paraguay. Those don't sound good. No. So just like the Nazis, they took notes on every fucking thing that they could. Right. It was a collection of documents chronicling some of the illicit activities undertaken by Strassner, who was the first to take over in Paraguay, their secret police force, all the way up through most recent activity as late as 1985. Within it, it showed the first time documented, like found documented evidence of the South American coalition. uh, And it was also leaked that there was enough connections within these documentation to show that the CIA was working with the South American coalition of these different juntas. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, it was not great. Within that list, there was up to 50,000 people killed. There were 30,000 people disappeared. I put that in quotation, which means... (laughs) that they are people who are presumed dead, but they did not find bodies for. And through up to 1985, there is an estimated 400,000 people who were wrongfully imprisoned and most likely tortured. 40,000 people. That's too many. Yep. So as this information started leaking out and it was finally released, there were mandates that finally put into place to not have a lot of these dictators into power, including the removal of Pinochet and including the remover of Strassner. Again, Strassner was in power since 1954, and he was not removed until 1989. So that is how long. (laughs) You good over there? (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. So, no, it's funny things happening on on the cameras that you guys can't see. I dropped my (laughs) p***. It fell off her microphone. Oh, that was too much. All right. So back to nearly 60,000 people murdered. Anywho. um, I could have ignored it, but I didn't. It's fine. I literally could have ignored it, but I couldn't. So it's fine. It's fine. We will collect ourselves and delete shit and it's fine. We're good. All right. Victims listed in the archives of terror included anyone who was deemed dissidents or leftists, union and peasant leaders, priests and nuns, students, teachers, intellectuals, and suspected guerrillas. Now, I'm going to speak specifically about Argentina again. Out of the 60,000 people killed during this time frame, it is estimated that 30,000 people came from Argentina alone 
from the years 1976 to 1983. So during that time frame, it is estimated that 30,000 people died just in Argentina. And that is why it is labeled the Dirty War. To go into uh, some more specifics, if you resisted the junta and if you resisted any military investigation, if you had the wrong literature, if you attended inappropriate college classes, if you were outspoken or if you protested, you were disappeared. You were taken in the middle of the day, you were put on a bus, and your family never saw you again. Junta operatives used torture methods, talked to them by the CIA to find fellow sympathizers. As we have learned with a lot of torture methods, a lot of people will just say someone to hopefully get out of the pain that they are in. So this also put a lot of people who may or may not have been in their criteria in danger, including fellow family members, just to say somebody. Military prisons popped up in jungles everywhere, hidden from view. The most egregious out of the crimes that were here were known as helicopter rides, where they would drug dissidents and they would drug targets. They would not kill them, but they would knock them immobilized, and then they would throw them off of helicopters. They would literally throw immobilized bodies, not unconscious, they would throw immobilized bodies off of helicopters. And they would do this purposefully to scare locals who would then find their bodies. And they would see tens, if not hundreds, of bodies drop a day. It was awful. Nobody can see my face right now. She's Uh, shocked. I I just, it's just shock. And my chin is like on my lap. Yes. One of the nearly wholly wiped out people in Argentina were anybody associated with the Jesuit monasteries. Because uh, for anybody who needs a, a background in religious history, Jesuits typically have a lot of socialist ideals. So they are monasteries of the people. They practice the will of Jesus. They have, they are very charity focused. They are very community driven. And they are also very outspoken members of of different communities. They provide orphanages, education, workshops, you know, a multitudes of things. But because they were spaces where a lot of these ideals fostered, they were targeted exceedingly heavily by the junta and were functionally wiped out. And that includes priests, that includes acolytes, that includes students, that includes nuns, that includes everybody. There really was no discrimination when it came to this type of violence. I mean, the helicopter rides are terrible, but like what happened to the Jesuits was equally as awful. It's all bad. It all sounds bad. It's all terrible. So here is another interesting fact. There is a story of a Jesuit priest who rose through the ranks of the Catholic Church, moving from and against the right-wing-inspired vitriol to be heralded as one of the best populist leaders of the Catholic Church. He was uh, unfortunately hated among his own countrymen and peers because he did cooperate in order to survive during the Dirty War. His name during this time was Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio, who is also now known as Pope Francis. (gasps) Whoa! Pope Francis survived the Dirty War, the entire Dirty War. He survived. Whoa! If you ever want to watch the movie, The Two Popes, they go into this in terms of a storyline background, but they also show the atrocities, which have not been properly talked about or acknowledged on the national stage in the manner that they deserve to be talked about. But just the evolution of seeing Cardinal to Pope and the storytelling that's involved, because it's, it's, it's a biopic, so it's not you know a direct one-to-one correlation. 
but the storylines involved is incredible. So yeah, so Pope Francis, uh, also known at that time as Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, survived the Dirty War. Damn, that's impressive. Yep. Entire families were torn apart by the disappeared, um, as well as the murdered, eventually creating human rights activist groups, most notably of which named the Mothers of the Palazzo de Mayo. This group, along with others, were the ones petitioning for governments around the world to release the names and the locations of their family members. They were also the main people that advocated for the U.S. to acknowledge their involvement. So that's, that's one of the reasons why, under the Obama administration, folks like actually did what was right. So I don't need to go too far into detail just because I feel like I've been talking for a really long time, but <laughs> I think everybody gets the gist. So I'm just going to lightly go over some of our acts of involvement. Through the release of this information, both the classified information and then also going through congressional records and understanding the foreign aid that was approved that we paid for, this, in essence, we paid a shit ton of money for Operation Condor to happen. I mean, just going through the list of some of the just big bills in military aid that were approved. $50 million, $30 million, $63 million. This was in 1978 money. Jesus. So just from 1977 to 1978, the United States sold more than $120 million worth of military spare parts just to Argentina from 1977 to 1978. Just to Argentina. We sold $120 million worth of military equipment to a country that we knew was performing genocidal acts. Too much. I know. In a letter that was given to, or in in a um, letter that was given to Congress where Secretary, that time, Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger, he met with Argentina's foreign minister and stated, and this is a direct quote, look, our basic attitude is that we would like you to succeed. I have an old-fashioned view that friends ought to be supported. What is not understood is in the United States is that you have to have a civil war. We read about human rights problems, but not the context. The quicker you succeed, the better. The human rights problem is a growing one. Our ambassador can apprise you. We want a stable situation. We won't cause you unnecessary difficulties. If you can finish before Congress gets back, the better. Whatever freedoms you could restore would help. So again, this is U.S. government acknowledgement that we know the terrible shit that is happening. We are giving you the supplies to do these things. We don't mind that you are destabilizing your country, but make sure it happens faster because that human rights program or the human rights problem that you're kind of creating is creating a problem for us. Uh... Yep. I could go into like the schools of America, which is where we trained everybody for this and how that's trained everybody all the right-wing death squads to go from Colombia to Nicaragua to Honduras to El Salvador to all of that. But I feel like I've given you all a lot of a lot of information. But just know that because a lot of these things are declassified, um, it's coming out. And I think that it's an appropriate conversation to have, both to acknowledge that we are not the good guy in a situation. And even if we ignored a situation or didn't know the full extent because we didn't have that if we didn't have all the information at that time that's not an excuse for allowing something to happen or to tell a military leader if you just happen to finish this up quicker that would be great well also we're like giving them money to do it Mm -hmm. and then we're basically saying like we can't do it here because it would be a problem yep but 
we are going to fund you doing it somewhere else so that at least someone's doing it. And I don't like that. Yep. And again, the the enemies in these countries that we've identified were people who are wanting to create policies to help poor people. Most of these these leftist activists were for working class rights and were for making sure governments and corporations don't control the access to water. If you want to read something terrifying about Chile and how a private entity owns access to water for the entire fucking country. Yeah, that's bad. So, again, I I understand that there needs to be a balance between ideals and, and political attributes, but this was a story and this was a happening where we actively involved ourselves in other countries, destabilized a region for making sure that an ideal didn't take root that we found to be a problem. And then we let crazy fucking people who had no problem killing their own countrymen, women and children in order to establish themselves in power. And that's that's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. Like any threat to American ideals is not worth the ignorance of not understanding how you completely demolished a country's way of life and living and the safety of their people for decades. And I think in addition to that, though, a big issue with America is we fight when those ideals are threatened, when those American ideals are threatened. Yep. But they're not being threatened on U.S. soil. No. So it's an issue of like, it's the same issue I have with like missionaries where like where they go on like missionary trips where they go to other countries Mm -hmm. that have their own religion. Right. And they're like, yeah, but you're not following my religion. Right. And I'm here to help you follow what I think is right for you and for everyone else. And it's like, okay, like. No, (laughs) Um, but also just like the U.S. likes to bounce around this idea that U.S. ideals are being threatened. That's the bag of goods that they sell Mm -hmm. to people to be like, we're fighting for your freedom. We're fighting for the American blah, blah, blah. And then but no one here is being threatened. No. No one here is having those things taken away. It's those ideals that we like to attribute to are being threatened on other people's land. Right. Internally, dealing with their own way of government, way of life. Right. And we just like to go just insert ourselves into their problems and be like, you're you're not doing what I want. And um, that's a threat. So, like, I'm going to fix this. And it's like, no, we should fucking keep our nose out of shit. And it's not it's not humanitarian. It's not humanitarian when you're doing something for the sake of making sure your way of life is stable when that way of life is infringing on other people. That's just not that's just not how it works. And to put this into perspective for how that is affecting us today, all of that destabilization that we have had in any of those regions, that is why those children are being sent to us from all of those countries. That that yeah. is why we are getting a huge influx of immigrant children who are trying to make their way here because not only do we have policies that accept that, but because of the destabilization that we fucking caused in that entire area. So if you want to complain about immigration, fine, but complain with the proper context in knowing that for our ideals of capitalism and oligarchy 
fucking run political systems where, you know, we bomb kids for oil, but we don't send humanitarian aid when it's needed in Syria. But whatever. Like, it's just like, I don't know. I know foreign policy is complicated. I am not a foreign policy expert. But if you are going to complain about people sending us their children, it's because of the actions that we have taken over decades that have caused so much strife in that reason that they need to live somewhere else. And the sad part is that they they are being forced to emigrate to a country that also caused a lot of the strife in their areas. So how's that for a fucking catch 22? Well, and also on top of that, it was from a country that tried to make their ideals a part of their country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it caused turmoil. So now come to us with those same ideas. Like, I don't know. Communism is not that scary, people. Like it's it's scary to those in power, but it's it's advocating for what you deserve is not that scary. And I would like people to fucking chill out about that. Good God. So, yeah, that's uh, the briefest synopsis of Operation Condor and the Dirty War in Argentina. And again, the story and the prop that the military are given in certain things like Tom Clancy. While I know there are a lot of good people that do good things, we cannot ignore and we, we cannot shift away from our mistakes And also we need to accept when we were not the good guy because not everything is a splinter cell ending. Not everything is a Tom Clancy ending. Not everything is a fully resolved movie where the good guy wins. It's really hard to be the good guy that wins when you're the bad guy. So so yeah, that was the history of all that bullshit. (laughs) It was a pile. That's one way of ending it. Pile. Ugh. I can't even I'm just I'm just I'm I'm looking at the notes that I haven't I haven't read yet and I can't read it because I'm going to get too angry. But again, just know that we spent way too much money and we gave way too much credence to murders. Anywho. Yeah. Well, going off, we're going to go a little back pre Yeba Yeba's uh, my era era. Mm -hmm. Her tale of woes. (laughs) And uh, I there's so much there's so much and so much is not covered in school when you're growing up and oh, learning God. about that's so the true. history of everything. And I still, I still so can't true. fully wrap my brain around what I'm going to be speaking upon because, again, like when you first learn about communism, you learn about it as this like big bad awful thing, and then when you start to break it down, you start to realize that these big bad awful people may not have been representing communism. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like as what communism is, they kind yes. of just like we're doing bad things and then called it communism. So then everyone's like, oh, communism is bad. Yep. But it's like, well, no, what they're doing is not communism. They're just calling it that. Yeah, it's it's authoritarian. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's like yeah, it's um, either like authoritarianism or it's a dictatorship or it's yep. like a fascist regime or it's a. Uh, it's all these other things that they just like put it under the umbrella of communism and they're like, well, we're a communist government. And it's like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> like China isn't communist. It's state sponsored authoritarianism. Yeah. Anyway, I, that, that's a that's a whole political spectrum discussion. But yeah, but no, yeah. you are exactly correct. And as I'm sure you and I have both experienced when it comes to like unpacking your American privilege and like unpacking and understanding the worldview of America and not just America's view on the world. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's just, it's like, it's like facing your internal biases 
when it came to racial justice. It's like facing your internalized misogyny. It's like facing all of these aspects of yourself where you're disappointed that you believed in that shit. Yeah. And of course, again, like it's one of those things that I don't feel proud of my country, but I still want my country to do better. And so I'm not going to abandon my country, but I am always going to advocate that people know the full story and people know what they can do to be better. Because I feel like if there's any generation that can do that, it's going to be ours. Yeah, it's kind of I I look at it as kind of like the Abe Lincoln awakening Mm -hmm. is what I call it, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of people think that Abe Lincoln is one of the best presidents this country has ever had. Right. Because of what he did for people of color that were in slavery. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's that great because of what he did to people of color that were in slavery. The bare fucking minimum. Yeah. And also as like he he did it as like a war tactic to create chaos, not because he thought it was the right thing to do, which causes internal like cringe for me because I'm just like you're being awarded this this ideal that you're like this great person Mm -hmm. when your justification for doing something that should have been done. Yes, is not good. It's not a good justification. So just that's kind of how I feel about a lot of stuff where I'm just like, ah, that's not the full story. But as I get into this, I'm still trying to unpack like communism and, and what is what and all of that. So this will be a lot of information. And, and it's still I still feel like the people that are calling themselves communists are still not great people, but not because they're communists. But we'll get into it. Well, and as we as we learn, sorry, last bit, as we learn yeah. when it comes to power, you can have the wrong people advocating for power for the right ideals. All it takes is one leader to be charismatic and bad for that to swing the incorrect way. Right. An ideology isn't there. There are ideologies that are wrong, but an ideology in practice is also dependent on the person who is putting it into practice. Yes. OK, take it away, Zoe. So I kind of mentioned it earlier about what my topic's going to be without actually mentioning it uh, (laughs) or calling out what my topic is. But basically, I grew up with the the spy of the house was definitely James Bond. James Bond was the and to this day is still the constant thing that my dad talks about. I mean, he's got like license plates for it. Like he really? Is, That's awesome. Oh yeah, he's got like 007 license plates. Woo! Like my dad is obsessed with James Bond to this day. So, so I will be talking about the origins of James Bond as well as like the really cool. Like I mean, everyone knows that James Bond was like books and comics and movies and stuff, but like also video games. Yeah. Um, so it all kind of ties in. So James Bond was uh. It focuses on a fictional British Secret Service agent, and it was created in 1953 by Ian Fleming, who featured him in 12 novels and two short story collections. Ian Fleming created the fictional character of James Bond as the central figure of his work, and Bond is an intelligence officer in the Secret Intelligence Service, commonly known as MI6. Bond is known by his code number 007, and was a Royal Naval Reserve commander. Fleming based his fictional creation on a number of individuals that he came across during his time in the Naval Intelligence Division, as well as the 30 Assault Unit during the Second World War. 
admitting that Bond was a compound of all secret agents and commando types that he met during the war. So he kind of drew inspiration from like a bunch of people to create James Bond. That's super cool. Yeah. And also what's really funny is that he Fleming talks about how he wanted to pick a, quote, boring name. Like he didn't want to have some like weird, exotic, like Benedict Cumberbatch kind of name. And he he went with James Bond. And now James Bond is like the iconic name that we know now. And and at the time when he was writing, he thought of that name as just boring and regular. Which is hilarious because it's also like the most quotable part of that entire franchise. Bond. James Bond. Like, come on. Come on. So some of his inspirations included Conrad O'Brien French, who is a distinguished British secret intelligence officer captain in the Tipperary Rangers of the Royal Irish Regiment, and 16th the Queen's Lancers in World War I. And he was a Mountie for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. So following World War I, Conrad was summoned to Whitehall in December of 1918 to meet the Colonel Stuart Menzies, who recruited Conrad into MI6. And while Conrad was a prisoner of war, he had learned fluent Russian and was now tasked with gathering information from Russian refugees fleeing the aftermath of the 1917 revolution. Holy crap. In 1920, Conrad was assigned to escort Russian diplomat Leonid Krasin through countries hostile to the new communist government to meet with Prime Minister Lloyd George in London for secret talks about the restoration of the trade to the West, or with the West. And this event the first face-to-face meeting between Russian communist leadership and the outside world led to the Anglo-Soviet trade agreement of March 1921. Mm. And that was to facilitate trade between the United Kingdom and the Russian Socialist Federal Soviet Republic. Lots of big words. But basically, like, after all of this, like, government turmoil, which we will get into, Conrad O'Brien was kind of the like liaison secret agent to kind of make this meeting happen to make this trade agreement happen. That's so cool. As part of MI6. So that's a a pretty big uh, influence on like James Bond's character of being like this secret agent type going behind like European lines. I don't know. So then another person who was an influence is Commander Wilfred Albert Biffy Dunderdale. I love this name. 10 out of 10 name. Why it's is a he, lot. He, it, should, it should have been John. What's his name? Dunder, John, Dunder. It's Commander Wilfred Albert Biffy Dunderdale. Can you imagine if instead of James Bond, it was Biffy, Biffy Dunderdale. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The if name's that was Dunderdale. That? Biffy Dunderdale. Biffy Dunderdale. Oh my God. It just sounds like a prank. So Biffy was a British spy and intelligence officer, and he worked for the British Secret Intelligence Service, the MI6, between 1921 and 1959. Mm. His work involved liaison with French intelligence and Polish intelligence, and he was station head of MI6 in Paris. Now, he wore cufflinks and handmade suits and was chauffeured around Paris in a Rolls Royce. Love it. So the fancy aspect of James Bond definitely comes from Biffy. However, there's not much information on Biffy, like at all. (laughs) He's a mystery. He's a fancy mystery. Would you say that he is a man of mystery? Hmm, I might. (laughs) And then the third person is Patrick Dalzell Job a British naval intelligence officer and commando in World War II. 
He was also an accomplished linguist, uh, author, mariner, navigator, parachutist, diver, and skier, wow. which I feel like all of his activities really influenced the, uh, the number of things that James Bond is capable of doing. Yes. And from April to June, he served with the Anglo-Polish-French Expeditionary Force to Norway. He disobeyed a direct order to cease civil, uh, civilian evacuations from Narvik, and his actions saved approximately 5,000 Norwegian people, for which King Hakon, Hakon of Norway um, awarded him like a, like a specific honor. That's so cool. For saving that many people, which I also feel like he... There's a comment where he didn't feel like he really influenced Bond because he said that he married the first woman he ever fell in love with and didn't drink much. So he didn't feel like he was a direct influence on James <laughs> Bond's character. That's However, adorable. I don't know. I feel like the hero aspect of James Bond really stems from this guy and like what he's willing to sacrifice and, and do for the right thing. Yeah. His work ethic, his drive. Exactly. Yeah. His willingness to disobey orders to save people. <laughs> <laughs> James Bond never went against MI6. That never happened. Uh, she taps her nose knowingly. <laughs> so as those prospects in Norway faded, he visited London and discovered the 30 assault unit. And that's kind of how he met Fleming. And he was a field operative in the unit of Naval Intelligence Division Room 30. And he transferred to the 30 assault unit under Fleming and then was like the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence. Super cool. Yeah. He like joined these people and that's how he met Fleming. And like I said, he didn't really feel like he was an influence, but I think he was for sure. So if you don't know what MI6 is, it is the secret intelligence service or the SIS commonly known as MI6 and is the Foreign Intelligence Service of the United Kingdom, tasked mainly with covert overseas collection and analysis of human intelligence. So they were formed in 1909 as a section of the Secret Service Bureau, specializing in foreign intelligence. The section experienced dramatic growth during World War I mm. and officially adopted its current name around 1920. The name MI6, meaning Military Intelligence Section 6, originated as a flag of convenience during World War II when SIS was known by many names. The stated priority roles of SIS are counterterrorism, counter-proliferation, providing intelligence in support of cybersecurity, and supporting stability overseas to disrupt terrorism and other criminal activities. Some of SIS's actions since the 2000s have attracted significant controversy, such as its alleged complicity in acts of torture and extraordinary rendition. So similar to the CIA, they have been not the greatest with their resources <laughs> and, and or how they how they get things yep. that they get. So, eh, you know, we've seen torture things in James Bond movies. So that's true. A whole waterboarding scene. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's how people get information. So one person who's not mentioned in Ian Fleming's wiki is, but is mentioned like everywhere else as a direct inspiration for James Bond is Sidney Riley. Mm. And I personally think that he is spot on. <laughs> I love this. So having a fascination for gadgets, deception and intrigue, 
Fleming was particularly attracted to Black propaganda work undertaken by the political warfare executive headed by former diplomat and journalist Robert Bruce Lockhart, Mm -hmm. with whom he also struck up an acquaintance with. So he kind of became friends with this Lockhart person. In 1918, Lockhart had worked with Sidney Riley in Russia, where they became embroiled in a plot to overthrow Vladimir Lenin's government. And within five years of Riley's disappearance in Soviet Russia in 1925, the press had turned Riley into a household name, dubbing him a master spy and crediting him with a string of fantastic espionage exploits. All because Lockhart wrote a memoir and kind of cast Riley as this master spy. So cool. So he kind of became this like poster child for espionage. So Sidney Riley, Russian-born adventurer and secret agent employed by Scotland Yard's special branch and later by the foreign section of the British Secret Service Bureau, the precursor to the modern British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. Like, it all sounds like a like a movie. Yeah, very. Yeah. yeah. He is alleged to have spied for at least four different great powers. And Lockhart publicized his and Riley's 1918 exploits to overthrow the Bolshevik regime. Now, the true details of Riley's origin, identity and exploits have eluded researchers and intelligence agencies for more than a century. Riley himself told several versions of his background to confuse and mislead investigators. (laughs) At different times in his life, he claimed to be the son of an Irish merchant, an Irish clergyman and an aristocratic landowner connected to the court of Emperor Alexander III of Russia. Holy shit. According to a Soviet secret police dossier compiled in 1925, he was perhaps born Zygmunt Markovich Rosenblum on March 24th, 1874 in Odessa. And other sources claim that Riley was born Georgie Rosenblum in Odessa on March 24th in 1873. Then another source states that he was born Sigmund Georgievich Rosenblum, March 24th, 1874. So they don't even know when this guy was born. Oh, my God. But no one knows really who his parents were. No one knows, like, what year he was born. Like, it's 84. It's 83. Like, it's crazy. Yep. And according to reports of the SARS political police, Rosenblum was arrested in 1892 for political activities and for being a courier for a revolutionary group known as the Friends of Enlightenment. Mm. He escaped judicial punishment and he was later friends with the Okrana agents. And these kind of details that he was friends with these people might indicate that he was actually a police informant even at such a young age. Wow. Or he was just he got in trouble and became a police informant. Who knows? <laughs> Chicken before the egg. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. But he just has a wild and unprovable background. Even how he got to Britain is still up for debate. There's one story where he faked his death after finding out the death of his mother in an Odessa harbor and then stowed away aboard a British ship bound for South America. Once in Brazil, he adopted the name Pedro and worked odd jobs as a dock worker, a road mender, and a plantation laborer, as well as a cook for a British intelligence expedition in 1895. That's where he allegedly saved both the expedition and the life of Major Charles Fothergill 
in which Rosenblum seized a British officer's pistol and killed the attackers with expert marksmanship. Father Gill rewarded his bravery with 1,500 pounds sterling, a British passport, and a passage to Britain. Alrighty then. It just all sounds fantastical. Very fantastical. That's one story. Another (laughs) story is that he arrived in London from France because in December of 1895, prompted by his acquisition of large of a large sum of money and a hasty departure from a residential suburb of Paris. That's how he arrived in London. Him and an accomplice waylaid two Italian anarchists on December 25th and robbed them of substantial amounts for their revolutionary funds. Like yes. That's what the money was intended for. Oh, my God. And so they killed them and robbed them. <laughs> And then that's how he got the money to flee to London. Now, maybe both are true. Maybe. Several months prior to this murder of the Italian anarchist, Rosenblum, which is Riley, had met Ethel Lillian Boole, a young English woman who was a budding writer and active in Russian circles. Mm. After their affair concluded, they continued to correspond, and Boole published what was called The Gadfly, a critically acclaimed novel whose central character was allegedly based on Riley's life as Rosenblum. In the novel, the protagonist is a bastard who feigns his suicide to escape his illegitimate past and then voyages to South America. He later returns to Europe and becomes involved with Italian anarchists and other revolutionaries. Now, evidence was found in 2016 among archived correspondence in the extended Bull Hinton family, confirming that a relationship transpired between Riley and Bull around 1895 in Florence. Huh. So there's some question of whether he was truly smitten with Bull and sincerely returned her affections, or he might have been paid by police to be an informant reporting on her activities with her work with, like, revolutionary radicals. Right. But there's evidence that they had a relationship. So her novel is, like, based on the life that he was telling people he had. Oh, my God. Now, granted, whether any of that actually happened is up for debate. Now, Britannica simply stated that he was born the illegitimate son of a Jewish doctor in Odessa, which is an additional story. And that he studied chemistry in Vienna before going to Brazil. There, he befriended a British army officer in the Amazon and was recommended to British intelligence in London. Because he can make up so much shit and be able to just be like the best agent that ever lived. Holy freaking crap. Like even his precursor to being involved with British intelligence is also just like a mess of like him just telling stories and you don't know if they're true or not. That's I mean, if you want a hallmark of like a talent, I feel like that's going to be pretty much at the top of your list. (laughs) Right? Can you bullshit your way out of anything? The answer is probably yes. This person, 100 percent. Yeah. So instead of going to Brazil and saving somebody, he just befriended somebody and they recommended him to the British intelligence in London, where he then changed his name to Sidney George Riley in 1899. So he is just full of fun stories. Once attached to the British Secret Intelligence Service, he allegedly over the years reported on Russian oil developments at Baku 
the progress of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, Dutch aid to the South African Boers, Mm -hmm. oil developments in Persia, the Russian naval fortifications in Port Arthur. And in 1905, as the story goes, he disguised himself as a priest on the French Riviera and inveigled the Persian oil concession holder, William Knox Darcy, into selling oil concessions to Britain against fierce French competition, greatly benefiting Britain's future energy supplies. Wow. Just like conned man. Jeez. <laughs> this is way more enjoyable in terms of like information war than like anything I just went through. It's just wild. It's just, it's bananas. And I'm, I'm enjoying it. Well, I think it's also because it adds intrigue because I could just be saying made up stories like (laughs) you don't know. Um, But as a manager of German shipbuilders agency in St. Petersburg, Russia, he seemed to have gained access to details of Germany's five year naval development plan, which he reported to London over a three year period prior to the outbreak of World War One. In New York City from 1914, he bought uh, munitions and helped counter German sabotage of American factories supplying the allies returning or just supplying the allies returning to Europe. He made frequent missions behind the German lines on one occasion, attending a general staff meeting in the presence of Kaiser William II. Holy crap. So he just like (laughs) walked straight in. No problem. Oh, that's bad taste that I just said the word waltz. Never mind. It's fine. We're good. (laughs) It's okay. What gained him notoriety, though, like true master spy notoriety, was his involvement in the attempt to sabotage the Bolshevik government in Moscow. Under the leadership of Russian communist Vladimir Lenin, the Bolshevik party seized power in the Russian Republic during a coup Yay, another coup. Another coup. Known as the October Revolution. The Lenin Party continued with the previously scheduled November 1917 election. Mm -hmm. But when it produced a constituent assembly dominated by the rival Socialist Revolutionary Party, the Bolsheviks were pissed and acted a counter-revolutionary to shut it down. They overthrew the pre-existing provisional government And the Bolsheviks establish a new administration, the first Council of People's Commissaires, with Lenin as the governing chairman. So the October Revolution, this big like coup, was also known as the Great October Socialist Revolution, in which that was the official term in the Soviet Union. Uh It was also known as the Bolshevik coup, the Bolshevik Revolution, the October Uprising, the October Coup, or Red October. It's known by a lot of names. Yeah. And it was a revolution in Russia led by the Bolshevik party under Lenin and was instrumental in the larger Russian revolution that really took place from 1917 to 1923. On the night of November 7th, the Bolsheviks seized the lightly guarded Winter Palace and arrested the government officials who remained. The provisional government collapsed and the Bolsheviks claimed power. It was the second revolutionary change of government in Russia in 1917. Wow. So it took place through an armed insurrection in Petrograd. Petrograd? Petrograd. I will just say now I'm going to mispronounce a lot of Russian words. Apologies to my Russian ancestors. (laughs) 
<laughs> things are about to be hardcore butchered. Yep. I really am very sorry. I joke, but I really, I really do feel bad. Um, but contrary to popular belief, Lenin did not overthrow the Tsar. So it was like a Tsarist monarchy that like existed and ruled Russia. And then that was like still during World War One. The Tsar was like fighting the war. Right. And what ended up happening was like the person who was supposed to take power next in the Tsar line didn't want it. Like just was like, nah, I'm good. And what ended up happening was they established this provisional government, like almost like in interim, like the provisional government kind of came in and took over and was like, we got this and then kind of like got power hungry. And then nobody liked the provisional government. So then the election that happened in November was going to go to this other party. And then the Bolsheviks were like, fuck that. And then staged a coup. Right. Where a lot of people think that the Bolshevik revolution was overtaking the Tsar. And it was a little more messy than that. It was actually the February revolution that had overthrown like the autocracy, which resulted in the provisional government. So urban workers began to organize into councils known as Soviets, wherein revolutionaries criticized the provisional government and its actions. The provisional government remained widely unpopular, especially because it was continuing to fight in World War I and had ruled with an iron fist throughout the summer. Mm. So this provisional government that swooped in and took power, everyone fucking hated them. So these little Soviets started to pop up and then parties began to form and then they were supposed to have an election in November and nobody really liked the results of that. Hence, Lenin. Yep. And so, okay, well, if we don't like the results, we're going to take it by force. Yay! A Yay. great idea. Bad idea. Yep. As the revolution was not universally recognized, the country descended into a civil war, which would last until 1923 and ultimately lead to the creation of the Soviet Union in late 1922. Lenin served as the first and founding head of government of Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1924 and of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1924. Under his administration, Russia and later the Soviet Union became a one-party socialist state governed by the Soviet Communist Party. He developed a variant of this communist ideology known as Leninism. So again, like I was trying to say at the beginning, this isn't really communism. They're called the Soviet Communist Party, but they're not actually enacting communism. They're enacting a one-party socialist state under a like dictator who kind of created his own ideology to govern shit by. So... You know, that's not really how that works. That's um, not how that works. I'm also I'm also clapping at your great identifying term breakdown of what the fuck that is. So thank you. You're welcome. Now, the attempt to assassinate Vladimir Lenin and to depose the Bolshevik government is considered by biographers to be Riley's most daring exploit. Here we go. So here we go. In January of 1918, the youthful Bruce Lockhart, who, as I said originally, was the dude that wrote the memoir. Yes. Had been personally handpicked by British Prime Minister David Lloyd George to undertake a sensitive diplomatic mission to Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. Lockhart's assigned objectives were as follows. To liaise with the Soviet authorities, to subvert Soviet-German relations, to bolster Soviet resistance to German peace overtures, and to push Soviet authorities into recreating the Eastern theater. 
Those were his tasks. Okay. And of course, he accomplished none of them. (laughs) (laughs) And it's thought that Lockhart decided uh, the only course of action he had left was to remove Lenin and just hope that the whole Bolshevik edifice would fall as a result. So it's never like there's a lot of muddy waters in this story because Mm -hmm. there is no confirmation that British intelligence sent them to assassinate Lenin. Like there is no... There's no official record. There's no official record. The record states that Lockhart was supposed to go and just like make nice, make peace, and try to get them to rejoin the war efforts. Okay. Because under Lenin, they were pulling out of this like world war. Right. Concurrently, Lockhart ordered Sidney Riley to pursue contacts within anti-Bolshevik circles to sow the seeds for an armed uprising in Moscow. Information warfare. Correct. He kind of brought Sidney Riley onto the project as one of his working agents. So in May of 1918, Lockhart, Riley, and various agents of the Allied powers repeatedly met with Boris Savinikov, Savinkov, Savinkov. Let's go with that. Uh, who was head of the Counter-Revolutionary Union for the Defense of the Motherland and Freedom, UDMF. That's quite the mouthful. I like it. It probably sounds way yes. better in Russian. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> A former Socialist Revolutionary Party member, Savinkov, had formed UDMF, consisting of several thousand Russian fighters, and he was receptive to ally overtures to depose the Soviet government. Lockhart, Riley, and others then contacted anti-Bolshevik groups linked to Savinkov, as well as the Socialist Revolutionary Party cells that were affiliated with Savinkov's friend, Maximilian Filonico. Filonico? Lockhart and Riley supported these factions with SIS funds. Okay. So the British intelligence was giving them money, and they were using that money to pay these, like, Russian agents that they were bringing on to the project as well. Okay. So this was all funded by SIS, but no one can track. Like, Lockhart states that they knew, and that's why they were supplying the money. Right. And of course, they say that they didn't have a hand in it at all, but they were still supplying the money. So in June, disillusioned elements of Colonel Burzin's rifle division began appearing in anti-Bolshevik circles in Petrograd. Mm -hmm. And were eventually directed to a British naval attaché, Captain Francis Cromie, and his assistant, Mr. Constantine, who was a Turkish merchant. Guess who Mr. Constantine was? I wonder. It was Sidney Riley. Who the <laughs> just, just playing a Turkish merchant. Excellent. Excellent. So undercover, Riley posed also- as a Turkish merchant. Bold choice to be Constantine. Bold choice. Constantinople, Constantine. Well done. Well done. Well done. Yes, I I appreciate that. In contrast to Riley's previous espionage operations, which had been independent of other agents, Riley worked closely while in Petrograd with Cromie in joint efforts to recruit Burzin's Latvians and to equip anti-Bolshevik armed forces. So... Him and Cromie were like undercover buddies trying to get more of Burzin's crew onto their side as well as equip them with weaponry. Okay. 
Lockhart and other allied agents allegedly planned a full-scale coup against the Bolshevik government and drew up a list of Soviet military leaders ready to assume responsibilities on its demise. As Lockhart's diplomatic status hindered his open engagement in these activities, he had chosen to supervise such activities from afar and then to delegate all of the actual direction and actionable items of the coup to Riley. Okay. To facilitate this work, Riley allegedly obtained a position as a sinecure within the criminal branch of the Petrograd Cheka, which is basically their police force. Yeah, Like okay. So he's undercover. He then got a job working for the Russian police. (laughs) How? Okay. Is this guy using disguises? Does he have like, does he have? I just picture really bad mustaches. It's just like, oh my gosh. Are you good with like lots of different hats and bulky clothing? Like somebody's got to recognize you at some point. (laughs) Holy crap. Throughout their backroom intrigues in Moscow, Lockhart never openly questioned Riley's loyalties to the Allies, although he privately wondered if Riley had made a secret bargain with Colonel Burzin and his Latvian riflemen to later seize power for themselves. Mm. But I think that's just paranoia. Yeah. In Spy World, you know? I was about to say, I feel like if you if you grow up and work in an industry where you're just not built to trust anyone, I feel like you're just going to have a natural paranoia level for anybody that you interact with right yeah there's natural distrust everywhere especially since riley's so good at lying so good at lying holy crap so unbeknownst to the ally conspirators though burson was actually an honest commander and devoted to the soviet government so although not czechist he nonetheless informed zerzinski's cheka that had been approached by Riley that the Allied agents had attempted to recruit him into a possible coup. Mm. So Burzin basically told on them. Oops. There's a lot of big words there. Most of them are Russian. But <laughs> basically, Burzin told on them. Like, yep. informed an, off- like a, a, an officer that Riley and Allied agents had attempted to recruit him. The information did not surprise Zerzinski as uh, the Cheka had already gained access to British diplomatic codes back in May and Ooh. were closely monitoring the anti-Bolshevik activities. Uh-oh. So Zerzinski Zer- instructed Burzin and other Latvian officers to pretend to be receptive to the Allied plotters and to meticulously report on every detail of their pending operation. So basically, they found out about the operation and then were staging a sting, essentially, like just like go pretend to listen and and agree and then report back to me kind of thing. I could never be a spy because there is so many things to think about. (laughs) On the 4th of August in 1918, an allied force landed at someplace in Russia. I'm sorry beginning a famous military expedition dubbed Operation Archangel. Its professed objective was to prevent the German Empire from obtaining Allied military supplies stored in the region. Okay. In retaliation for this incursion, the Bolsheviks raided the British diplomatic mission, and this whole endeavor actually disrupted a meeting that Riley had arranged between anti-Bolshevik Latvians the UDMF, and Lockhart. 
So Uh-oh. Riley had put together this big meeting yep. to kind of discuss the coup. And this other Operation Archangel kind of just like ruined their whole meeting. Yee! But they later were able to have additional meetings where they agreed that the coup would occur in the first week of September during a meeting of the Council of the People's Commissaires Mm -hmm. and the Moscow Soviet at the Bolshoi Theater. Okay. So they planned to stage the coup at this big meeting in September. By this time, the Allied conspirators had organized a broad network of agents and saboteurs throughout Soviet Russia, whose overarching ambition was to disrupt the nation's food supplies. Uh So they had planned to disrupt the nation's food supplies and coupled with the planned military uprising, they believed that a chronic food shortage would then trigger popular unrest and further undermine the Soviet authorities. So they were going to stage this coup at this meeting, like fuck the food supply and then kind of like use the public's unrest to really like push the coup over. Got it. However, on August 30th, Savinkov and Maximilian Filonenko, the two dudes that from the UDMF that they made friends with. Yes. Riley and Lockhart. Yes. These two guys ordered a military cadet named Leonid Kenegisser, who was actually um, Maximilian's cousin. Okay. They ordered Maximilian's cousin to shoot and kill the head of the Petrograd Cheka. Uh-oh. So they ordered him to shoot this, like, top Secret Service military dude. Mm -hmm. And on that same day, Fania Kaplan, a former anarchist who was now a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, shot and wounded Lenin as he departed the Michelson Arms Factory in Moscow. Okay. As Lenin exited the building and before he entered his motor car, Kaplan called out to him. When Lenin turned towards her, she fired three shots with a Browning pistol. One bullet narrowly missed Lennon's heart and penetrated his lung, while the other bullet lodged in his neck near the jugular vein. Due to the severity of these wounds, Lennon was not expected to survive. The attack was widely covered in the Russian press, generating much sympathy for Lennon and boosting his popularity. Oh boy. And as a consequence of his assassination attempt, the meeting between Lennon and Trotsky the one in September where the bribed soldiery would seize them on behalf of the allies was postponed. Also, it's interesting to note that like all this time, Lockhart and Riley were never planning an assassination. Lockhart would talk about how like removing Lenin, killing Lenin might solve their problems. But what they ended up planning out was just a coup, not necessarily an assassination. They right. were trying to plan a military uprising to capture, arrest, whatever, these people in power, and then overthrow them. But there was no assassination as part of the plot. So then Fania Coplin just up and attempts to assassinate Vladimir. Mm-hmm. Now, during interrogation... Fania stated, my name is Fania Kaplan. Today I shot Lennon. I did it on my own. I will not say from whom I obtained my revolver from. I will give no details. I have resolved to kill Lennon long ago. I consider him a traitor to the revolution. Boy, does that sound planned, but okay. Yeah. Although it's still unknown if Kaplan was either part of the what's called ambassador's plot 
or mm-hmm. was even responsible for the assassination attempt on Lenin to begin with because, right. you know, chaos. <laughs> now, the murder of that Cheka leader, the the It's kind the of like commander. a chief of police type of a thing. Yeah, yeah, basically, it's the chief of police. The murder of the chief, chief of police and the failed assassination of Lenin were then used by Zerzinski's Cheka to implicate any malcontent and foreigners in a grand conspiracy that warranted a full-scale reprisal campaign known as the Red Terror. So this kind of catapulted that because the chief of police got attacked and then Vladimir Lenin was attempted, assassinated, which he did survive and no one thought he would. That's pretty crazy if you get shot in the neck and you survive. Yeah, shot in the lung and shot in the neck. Like, and also he was apparently so scared for his life, like just thought that everyone was out to get him, that he refused Mm -hmm. to go to a hospital and demanded that doctors come to him. And so they had to do this like crazy surgery type thing, like in, I don't know, an undisclosed location. So they really didn't think he would survive. Damn. So using lists supplied by undercover agents, the Cheka proceeded to clear out the nests of conspirators, uh, which is what they called them, in the foreign embassies. And in doing so, they arrested key figures vital to the impending coup. So they, on August 31st, believing that Savinkov and Filonenko were hiding in the British consulate, the Cheka raided the British consulate and killed Cromie who put up an armed resistance. So that was Riley's partner. Lockhart was arrested by Zerzinski and transported under guard to a Labyanka prison. Okay. And during a tense interview with a pistol-wielding Cheka officer, he was asked, do you know the Kaplan woman and where is Riley? That's intense. When queried about the coup, Lockhart and other British nationals dismissed the mere idea as nonsense. So they were trying to see if she was part of their plan. Like they knew right. that they were coming up with this coup, but they couldn't tell if Kaplan was just acting on her own or if she mm-hmm. was part of this whole thing and part of the coup was an attempt, an attempted assassination. Now, all of this went down very quickly post uh, Lenin being shot and Riley fled, just fled Russia, <laughs> just peaced out. Probably the best idea. Now, Russian newspapers reported that both Riley and Lockhart had been sentenced to death by a revolutionary tribunal for their roles in the attempted coup of the Bolshevik government. The sentence was to be carried out immediately should either of them be apprehended on Soviet soil. Now, of course, Lockhart was already captured and imprisoned, so you would think that he would be put to death. However, he escaped his trial because he participated in an exchange of secret agents. Apparently, Mm. uh, Britain had a Russian agent, and they were willing to trade that Russian agent for Lockhart. That's pretty commonplace. Yeah, so he was able to escape his death sentence. However, you know, the Russian tribe, or the Revolutionary Tribunal still stated that should he return to Russia, he will be put to death. Yeah. However, this sentence would later be served to Riley when he was caught by Zerzinski's OGPU in 1925. So according to Riley's wife, Riley was perpetually determined 
to, quote, return to Russia to see if he could not find and succor some of his friends who he whom he believed to still be alive. Hmm. So he wanted to go back to Russia to save his friends. Yep. So he did this in 1925 and he never came back. Undercover agents of the OGPU lured Riley into Bolshevik Russia, ostensibly to meet supposed anti-communist revolutionaries. And at the Soviet-Finnish border, Riley was introduced to undercover OGPU agents posing as senior trust representatives from Moscow. So he got bad intelligence and was tricked into entering Russia and they captured him and he was never seen again. So obviously they executed him is like the the conclusion you would draw from that. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't see any other any other avenue for that. Yeah. Cheka claimed that under interrogation, Lockhart clearly stated that the government in London sanctioned an attempted assassination and that Lockhart's role was to facilitate it. So under interrogation, Lockhart basically said, British intelligence told me to sanction and attempt an assassination. Wow. And that's why I'm here. I'm to do that. And obviously his co-conspirators were double agents. The, yep. the Russian officers that he had tried to bring onto the project were, were not on his side. And we're working for the Bolsheviks. And in the end, this Lockhart plot was actually just a sting operation controlled by Zerzinski in the goal of mm -hmm. discrediting the British and French governments. So in the 1930s, Lockhart wrote the memoir, uh, which was Memoirs of a British Agent, in which he categorically denied any part of the assassination attempt. Uh -uh. He blamed the entire thing on Riley who obviously was not alive to deny it. Yeah. He blamed the whole thing on Riley and claimed that it had just gotten out of control. Now, many years later, Lockhart's son actually claimed that his father was much closer to Riley than he initially stated publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, and his son also went on to write his own book called The Ace of Spies, which was about his father's friend and fellow agent. So as you were talking about some of those folks. Yeah, that was one that definitely I was starting to look up people while you were saying that. And that was something I came across and I already added it to my Goodreads. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So like he wrote his memoir, which coined Riley as this master spy, because while he did blame Riley for the entire event, he didn't right. really like paint Riley as a bad guy. Like he, it wasn't like a memoir right. shitting on Riley. But it was a memoir about this, like, insane master spy who, like, was trying to, like, stage a coup in an attempt assassination. But, of course, like, he probably told his son other stuff. And his son then went on to write a book called Ace of Spies, which was about Sidney Riley. And also, this is from which the television series Ace of Spies came from. Like, it was very nice. Very nice. So... Although Riley was a spark or a catalyst for this master spy concept, Bond's personality was a fictional cocktail culled from a range of characters, including Fleming's own. There are certainly threads of Riley's hard edge personality to be found in the Bond who inhabits the pages of Fleming's books. Mm -hmm. And like Fleming's fictional creation, Riley was multilingual with a fascination with the Far East, fond of fine living and a compulsive gambler. <laughs> he also exercised a Bond-like fascination for women 
and his many love affairs standing comparison with the adventures of 007. Unlike James Bond, though, Sidney Riley was by no stretch of the imagination a conventionally handsome man, and his appeal lay more in his elusive qualities of charm and charisma. He also was capable of being cold and menacing, which Mm. I do through all this reading of Riley. I do find it very interesting that a person committing crimes at a young age, a person compulsively lying, someone who's not really conventionally handsome, but very charming and convincing and manipulating, who Mm -hmm. can also be cold and menacing. Like these are all aspects that you read when you're reading about like a serial killer or very much like a mass murderer or something. But with him, I mean, he probably did kill people, but it's weird to be on like that other side of that personality. Like that personality is clearly shown in a lot of histories of serial killers, that type Mm -hmm. of person. And it's it's interesting to see that that type of person can also go on to be like instead of a serial killer, you're a secret agent. Like, like to do to do extraordinary things with the talents that are considered fairly sociopathic, but to use it in a different manner. Right. To be, you know, whether it's a benefit for a government or whether it's to stop an actual full fledged revolution in a different country, which is bananas. Yeah. I mean, obviously they failed, but, you know, good effort. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, they're not the only ones in history that have done that. So at least they're yeah. the most fanciful in the way that they did it, I guess. True. True. I just also like I kind of do like the fact, though, that like a woman kind of like stole their thunder. Yeah. Like ruined their whole plan, like straight up ruined their whole plan. As you were talking about it, it was very like, is this the Reagan assassination attempt? Because that's what it also felt like when you were describing it, like called to him as he was going into his car, ran up to him, right? shot him a couple of times when he did that stuff. Like it was it was it was like a weird instance of like uncanny valley yeah. and similarities. So, yeah. And, like, also, like, who knows if their plan could have worked? Yeah. They just never, like, their plan didn't really fail because it didn't work. It didn't happen at all because someone else tried to kill Lenin before they could seize him. Yep. And I also find it very interesting that, like, again, assassinating him was never really part of the plan. It's mentioned a few times, but it doesn't seem to actually be part of their active plan. Well, and I think people have learned over the years, especially when it comes to political dissonance, is if you give someone the chance to be martyred, they will. Right. So when you have a revolutionary that goes through either a tumultuous death um, or a very public death or something that that obviously seems like there was a conspiracy behind it, like an assassination, you're going to have that essence of martyrdom comes out of the woodwork and makes them either a more notable character than they should be or they Mm -hmm. become the poster child for whatever instance of revolution is being called for. So I can see why they they wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Outright, I should say. Why they they wouldn't want to murder (laughs) him outright. Outright, yeah. Not like Kaplan, because clearly that only bolstered his popularity. A little bit. So James Bond became, like I said, like everyone knows James Bond, TV series, major movies, comics, and of course, video games. So several games are based upon the James Bond films, uh, which, by the way, there's 24 James Bond films. There are. There are quite a few. Quite a few James Bonds as well. Yeah. And 25, apparently, 
coming out this year. I'm not really sure how accurate that is. But Sean Connery was James Bond for mm-hmm. Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, he was also, and then he returned for Diamonds Are Forever. But George Lazenby was James Bond on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Then Roger Moore took over and was James Ooh, Bond for favorite. Live and Let Die. <laughs> Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, The Lovely Octopussy. Yep. (laughs) Love saying that. A View to Kill. Then Timothy Dalton took over for The Living Daylights, License to Kill, and Goldeneye. We love Timothy Dalton. Oh, sorry. Goldeneye was Pierce Brosnan. Goldeneye was Pierce Brosnan. Yep. Yes. Timothy Dalton, his last one, or he he was only in two of them. And then Pierce Brosnan was Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day. And then Daniel Craig took over and has done Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectra. And the newest one is apparently going to be No Time to Die. Hmm. So lots of movies and the video games were all developed and published by a variety of companies. This IP has been passed around. Yes, it has. The popularity of the James Bond video game series did not rise quickly until 1997's GoldenEye 007 by uh, Rare for the Nintendo 64. Electronic Arts took over the license from MGM Interactive when when a video game based on Tomorrow Never Dies was in development in 1998. Developer Black Ops Entertainment handled the final form of the title and the game saw the light of day in 1999 on PlayStation, where it met mixed reviews from critics. However, it became a financial success. The following entry was to be based on The World Is Not Enough, consisting of several versions released on multiple platforms, including one on Nintendo 64, developed by Eurocom, and a version for PlayStation developed by Black Ops Entertainment. And then the Game Boy Color version was by 2N Productions. So all three met different results in spite of being commercially successful. In 2001, EA released Agent Under Fire for Xbox, PlayStation 2, and GameCube, which featured an original storyline and lacked the likeness of Pierce Brosnan as Bond, who was the current Bond at the time. Uh, The game added the elements of rail shooting and driving segments to a first-person shooter, and the game sold nearly 5 million copies, making it the second most successful game in the whole series. In 2002, Nightfire was released, coinciding with the 40th anniversary of the film franchise and retaining Brosnan's likeness for the Bond character, so they brought him back. It was developed by Eurocom for the PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox consoles with a PC port developed by Gearbox Software. Now, Nightfire was my favorite. That was the James Bond game that I played all the time. Nice. It was the one that me and my brother would play Capture the Flag on the PlayStation 2. And I would camp out on the roof with a Sentinel and I would shoot all the little NPCs that tried to come steal our flag. I love it. And it's it's by far my favorite James Bond game. Mine is definitely Goldeneye. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Slappers only. No odd job. Best times from like sleepovers (laughs) from my childhood. So and then yeah. yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, I don't think I played that one. Oh, well, I have it. So you just let me know. Okay, we'll do. (laughs) (laughs) 
In 2004, EA released Everything or Nothing, developed by EA Redwood for the PlayStation 2. And unlike the two previous installments, Everything or Nothing is a third-person shooter with driving missions, and it stars the voices and likeness of Pierce Brosnan. Later that year, GoldenEye Rogue Agent was released on the same platforms, with the exception of the Game Boy Advance. And a first-person shooter loosely connected to the Bond franchise, uh, a spinoff, stars a former MI6 spy known as GoldenEye who works for Goldfinger against Dr. No. So it was kind of, it wasn't really, that one wasn't really about James Bond, but it was like mashup. Yeah, okay. It was like a mashup. (laughs) The game did not do well for the misleading title and poor storyline, apparently. I can imagine. Yes, well, when you coin a James Bond game and it doesn't have James Bond in it, it's going to be a problem. Yep. Shortly after EA abandoned the license in May of 2006, Activision acquired non-exclusive rights to develop and publish James Bond games, which were to become exclusive in 2007. And at EA in 2010, or EA, E3, at E3 in 2010, Nintendo revealed a GoldenEye 007 remake for the Wii, which was the remake of the 1997 game. Right. Activision's third Bond game, Bloodstone, was released on the same day as the GoldenEye 007 remake in November of 2010. And in April of 2012, Activision announced plans for a game titled 007 Legends to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the James Bond film franchise. And this game was described as almost like a greatest hits compilation. Okay. Retelling six film narratives with an overarching storyline to connect them all together. Okay. But in 2013, Activision and Steam's online stores removed availability for Quantum of Solace, Bloodstone, and 007 Legends without explanation or warning, Mm. only to confirm three days later that the James Bond game license had been revoked. Oh, okay. So a month later, Activision themselves declared that they would be backing away from licensed games in a formal statement. And that was kind of it for like the James Bond games. It didn't go anywhere after Activision, really. In January 2014, president and co-founder of Telltale Games, Kevin Bruner, expressed an interest in making future James Bond games if he were afforded the chance for the license. However, we all know how that turned out. Oh, that made me sad. Yeah, that like I feel like they could have done really cool narrative stuff for James Bond, but also like, yikes, I got excited. Yeah, I got excited for three hot seconds and then my heart went, oh, no, but they're not around anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I also was like, oh, maybe they'll buy it. And then I'm like, never mind. Just kidding. Just Mm. kidding. Clearly that didn't pan out. And the last update was in November of 2020. IO Interactive announced Project 007, a brand new James Bond video game, working closely with the MGM and Eon Productions licensors. And IO described the game as a wholly original Bond story where players will step into the shoes of the world's most favorite secret agent to earn their 00 status in a very first Bond origin story. And this game is apparently currently, yeah, I mean, it's currently in pre-production. So who knows? To end this James Bond uh, adventure, I have a fun side fact. And this actually is fun, not like our misuse of the word fun. (laughs) Shortly after.
after James Bond 007 was released in 1983 by Parker Brothers, another video game was announced titled Octopussy, based on the film of the same name. The game was planned for release on the Atari. Oh, my God. And set for release in the summer of 1983, but was canceled for unknown reasons. Um, I'm pretty sure those reasons... I wonder what those reasons were. I don't know. I have uh, eight ideas, and (laughs) all of them are... are (laughs) Anyway, I can kind of understand why that may have not gone over well. Yes. But yeah. It's staring us in the face quite nicely. (laughs) It's really looking at you. (laughs) That is the history of James Bond, though. I feel like my dad would be really proud. So cool. He'd never listen to this podcast, but he'd be very proud. (laughs) (laughs) I think he would be, too, especially to let everybody know that, you know, inspired James Bond paraphernalia is in his possession. So that's definitely, definitely a good cause. But that was really cool. I I definitely added two books to my Goodreads because of what you just talked about. So sweet. Yeah. The Lockhart plot and the Ace of Spies. Yeah, that was the fun. That happened. Fun background. So yeah. So that is our episode of Spies. Yeah. That was super cool. And that. Okay. Yeah. That was awesome. I'm happy we finally did this subject. I'm a big fan. (laughs) It was a fun subject to do. And if you stuck around this long, thank you so much for listening to the whole thing. We hope that you found it enjoyable and crazy and fun and as well as informative on the political side. But yeah, please, wherever you're listening, either follow, subscribe, leave a good review, tell your friends, tell your mom. And if you want to see us anywhere else, we are on social media and Twitch as well. So if you ever want to have conversations about spies and espionage, we'll be happy to talk about things from Splinter Cell all the way to Charlie's Angels. Heck yeah. I love Sam Rockwell. He's like the best villain ever in anything. I adore him. (laughs) Every time I think of Charlie's Angels, I think of his entrance. I'm like, yep, nope. Love this. Just like the, this is the foot tapping and then the, the aesthetic dancing. I want. Yep. Get it. We're going. both dancing. Get it. Oh get yeah. It, get it. Get it. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Absolutely. Stay sleuthy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.